Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Just a note to say that if you're hearing this, you are not currently on our subscriber feed and will only be hearing partial episodes of the podcast. If you'd like access to full episodes, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. There you'll find our private RSS feed to add to your favorite podcatcher, along with other subscriber-only content. And as always, I never want money to be the reason why someone can't listen to the podcast. So if you can't afford a subscription, there's an option at samharris.org to request a free account. And we grant 100% of those requests. No questions asked. This is still the same podcast. We just have a new name. Of course, the name change was driven by my need to differentiate the podcast from my meditation app. And um, the app really is appropriately called Waking Up because it's a direct descendant from the book I wrote by that title. I honestly cannot remember what possessed me to steal the title from my book for the podcast, but Making Sense is a much better name, given the range of topics I touch here. Of course, the name is not meant to be self-congratulatory. I'm not claiming that I always make sense, just that I'm always trying to. I'm told it might take a little time for the new name and cover art to propagate to the various podcast players. Other than the new name, and the new music, and the new cold that I am struggling to get over, it is the same podcast. So going forward, waking up just refers to my meditation app. And so all of you on Twitter who are tagging at waking up to discuss the podcast, you can stop doing that. There really is a fair amount of brand confusion out there, which I am entirely responsible for. So I am now cleaning up my own mess. And if you're interested in the app, you can find out more about it at wakingup.com. It is under continuous development. This really is a much bigger undertaking than I ever realized it would be. I now have a team of six people working on the app full-time, and that team is growing. If you're on the email list for the app, you know that the subscription price is about to double. The price that's been out there was always the introductory price. But if you subscribe to the app during the introductory period, whether monthly or yearly, you'll maintain that price for as long as you remain subscribed. And as you know, anyone who was supporting the podcast at any level prior to the launch of the app got it for free for life. So if you want to get the app for the lowest price or get it for a friend for that price, now is the time. I think this podcast is dropping on the 28th, so you have a couple of days. But as I've said before, I don't want money to ever be the reason why someone doesn't get access to my work. So if you really can't afford a subscription to the Waking Up course, you can send an email to info at wakingup.com, and you'll get a year on the app for free. And if your luck hasn't turned by the end of that year, well, then just send another email. This is also my policy with respect to everything that goes behind my paywall for this podcast. If you really can't afford a subscription at samharris.org, then just send an email to info at samharris.org, and we will open a free account for you. Of course, I have to reserve the right to modify this policy if too many people abuse it, but I am attempting to create a new business model here. At least it's new to me. Okay. Upcoming events for my event in New York at the Beacon on March 3rd, 
There I will be speaking with Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate in economics and professor emeritus in psychology at Princeton. As I think many of you know, Danny is widely regarded as one of the most influential living scientists, uh, especially for his work on decision-making that he did with Amos Tversky. Danny is just a, uh, a brilliant guy, and it will be an honor and a pleasure to speak with him. I believe there are still some tickets available for that event. Once again, that's at the Beacon on March 1st in New York City. I'm still finalizing the guests for my events in Boston and D.C. at the end of February. And at the time this podcast drops, I will probably be doing my first event with Eric Weinstein, probably in Detroit, but there may still be tickets left for Milwaukee and Chicago when you're hearing this. Anyway, all event information is on my website at samharris.org forward slash events. And now for today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Stephen Fry. Stephen is a comedian, actor, writer, presenter, voiceover artist, and activist. Some of his most well-known acting work includes A Bit of Fry and Laurie, Jeeves and Wooster, Blackadder, Kingdom, and the film V for Vendetta. He's also written and presented several documentary series, including the Emmy Award-winning Stephen Fry, The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive. Stephen's contributed columns and articles for newspapers and magazines, and written four novels and three volumes of autobiography. And he also frequently appears on British radio. And as you will soon hear, Stephen is just a wonderfully erudite man who fairly reeks of the most basic human decency. He really is one of the nicest guys in the world. And we cover a fair amount of ground. We discuss comedy and atheism and political correctness. There's a lot of talk about meditation and mindfulness. We talk about negative emotions, ambition, empathy, psychedelics. He was a close friend of Christopher Hitchens, so we speak about Hitch. And we cover much else. All I can say is that if you take even a fraction of the pleasure in Stephen's company that I did, you will enjoy the next two hours. And now I bring you Stephen Fry. I'm here with Stephen Fry. Stephen, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sam, it's a pleasure. Um, a long-held ambition finally realized. Oh, nice, nice. Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's most mutual. First of all, I mean, in preparing for this, and in just looking at, I mean, normally my experience is, you know, I invite someone on whose work I, I have absorbed because they've written one book or two books. I look into your bio and there is such a profusion of creativity. It is just ridiculous. You are a comedian, a writer. You've both written nonfiction and novels. You are a presenter of many different things. You are a voiceover artist. I, I just started listening to your Sherlock Holmes. I believe my daughter has listened to your voice more than most oh, right. <laughs> on the, through Harry Potter. How do you think of your own creative output? I mean, what, what, is one of your identities more locked up in one of these bins than, than another, or do you just float freely between them all? No, it's a good question, and I'm not quite sure of the answer. On any given day, I might give a different response. But generally speaking, I cleave to the truth that writing is the thing that gives me the deepest satisfaction. And indeed, the, the highest highs, you know, the most extreme feelings of whatever that creative impulse is 
it doesn't mean that what you're writing is good, but the feeling you get from a, a sense of achievement in, in writing is a, is the most, it's, it's bigger than the burst of applause on stage or anything like that. But where it all comes from, I've, I've no idea. I, my current theory is, is greed, essentially. I've accreted a lot of material that I've made and done in the same way that my body has accreted a lot of fat because I'm very greedy. I can't help eating a lot. And the result is you'll get fat. And, and if you're I'm greedy to, um, to write, to perform, to try all kinds of different things. And so in the end, you, you, you have a, a subcutaneous layer of material that you can't quite believe. It does surprise me I've done so much. And I think, again, without sounding over-paradoxical, it may be a result of having no particular talent. I think if I were, if I were really smart, if I were smart enough to be an academic philosopher or a, a, you know, a literary professor or something, I would have stuck to that. If, if I had any musical gift, I would have embraced that. If I really felt that I was a supreme actor rather than... I would have stuck to finding good roles to, to play in films and TV rather than just sweeping up the odd unconsidered trifle so it's, it's it's the advantage of being a jack of all trades and master of none all right well you're either you either lack self-awareness or uh, you're guilty of false humility or <laughs> some combination of the two and are guilty of britishness which are, i'm sure are, we'll come to yeah we will come to it yeah no doubt <laughs> so but so as an, as an actor as a comedic actor have you has hugh laurie been your your most frequent collaborator or is... yes we we met at university when we, we were both in our late teens early 20s and instantly i hit it off i, I sort of have described it before as like falling in love and in a non non-sexual or even bromantic way although there was a bromance we're best friends i guess it was just an instant collaborative and creative fitting and meshing somehow we we just had the same sense of humor as much as anything i think especially when you're young because the young are very unforgiving and very knowledgeable unlike the older um <laughs> We absolutely agreed on what we hated in comedy. And, and I mm -hmm. think you'll find that amongst adolescents and late adolescents when they're in a, in a garage band. It, it's as much they're doing this to piss off fans of X, Y, or Z style of music that they just hate. Can, um, that's can you, what powers uh, the young. Can you disclose your hatreds or would well, you be trampling was, on the uh, reputations I, of friends? And The obvious. I think, actually, I mean, we were quite... We'd like to think we were quite advanced. I mean, we, we used to write sketches in which we, which we never performed because they were almost too... We felt people didn't, weren't as annoyed as we were by the cliché of the stand-up comedian. Even then, even back in the early 80s, there were starting to be these waves of comedians who were just... I remember creating one who was an American stand-up who, who uh, did this thing about being a, a drug... A, a drug dog sniffer mm -hmm. and how that would be the greatest job in the world so that the stand-up comedian could be a dog and go woo right. and and then could do sniffing because i thought it was such a crap cheap obvious pathetic since that 10 years later i've seen comedians doing that right, same right, material so, hey wouldn't that be a great gig? Succeeded, yeah. can you imagine you're a sniffer dog for god's sakes <laughs> yeah and you go what how is that funny how right. isn't that the most base pathetic i mean if someone can can do it as a vague remark in a saloon bar in the right. evening. It is not worthy of professional comedy. And I suppose Hugh and I had a very high doctrine of what comedy should be. It, it should surprise and be unlike anything you'd ever heard before. Hmm. And each generation will want to tear away what they see as the, 
the, the cliches and the, the sort of sort of cookie cutter approaches of the generation before. Do you feel that comedy does not age as well as many other products of creativity? Because I'm always mortified to go back to something I thought was hilarious, only yeah. to find that not only is it deeply unfunny, but I, I hate my former self for, <laughs> for, for, for having found it as funny as I, I did. I do know what yeah. embarrassment is, yeah. is the word which we may come back to. And, and I think there are some sort of golden jewels of comedy that you seem never to age. I mean, uh, I played to a, a godchild of mine not long ago, Bob Newhart doing his driving lessons and Walter Raleigh. They still are just rock solid right. pieces of work. Partly because I, I guess they slightly suggest a sort of Mad Men era of guy in a suit with a cigarette standing on a stage being kind of easy. But other than that, they don't really date. Whereas some early Steve Martin that I thought was the greatest comedy I ever heard, do you think, well, that wild and crazy guy yeah. isn't quite as wild and crazy as I thought he was. <laughs> right, right. And, and maybe that's as it should be. I, I, and not only that, of course, comedian's age. And I, I do think certainly sketch comedy, dressing up as a, you know, as a bishop or a, a lawyer or a judge or something, is funnier when a young person does it. It's a bit like the school. It's a bit like doing an impression of your school teacher. Right. And when you're actually old enough to be a judge or a bishop, it's character acting. It isn't quite the same as the, the sort of Python-esque. The wonderful thing about seeing Python playing brigadier generals and, uh, and, and bishops and things is that they're still in their 20s. Yeah. So I only met Hugh once very briefly, but he seems like an extraordinary Yeah, he nice came guy. to see you, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he, he's a big admirer of yours. Yeah, he, he came to the, uh, the event I did with uh, Steve Pinker. That's right. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so that was, that was great to meet him. So you and I met at uh, Hitch's memorial. Mm. I'm surprised it took so long for us to meet because we were in similar yeah. circles for a while as yes. voluble atheists. <laughs> but, I was the groom to the four horsemen. Yeah, that's right. Or the ostler, just sort of holding the reins. Yeah. <laughs> off you go, sirs. You go and gallop off and spread the news. I'll be back here with a, with a point for you when you're on your way back. Well, yeah. So, so that's, I should probably flag that at the outset here. So the nominal pretext for our conversation is that we're releasing the book version of the conversation, the Four Horsemen conversation that Hitch, Richard Dawkins, Dan Dennett, and I had in 2007, uh, which um, was recorded happily, really was recorded as an afterthought. We, all, we almost did it. We just got together in, in Hitch's apartment. and Yes, filmed in his DC apartment, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, and it was, I was surprised to realize that that was actually the only conversation the four of us ever had. It's counterintuitive even to me, but you know, yes. knowing knowing my own life. But I'm sure it will be counterintuitive to the people who who hear this. And so we anyway, we um, refined the transcript of that conversation, and then each wrote introductory essays. And you were generous enough to write a forward to it. And so that's coming out in, I believe, March. Obviously, it's available on. Um, Amazon now for pre-order, and, and we're you know shamelessly plugging this here. All the all the proceeds go to the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, which I believe is now joined at the hip with the center with it, the center. It for is Inquiry. indeed. They yeah. very kindly gave me an award at Las Vegas this year. So oh, nice. I, nice. I went to meet with yeah. They're they're fused. Yeah. As as one body. Well done. And and it's worth remembering that uh, at that time you four were you were characterized as the new atheists. There was this idea of a new atheism, a rather more 
intellectually rigorous, open, free-thinking, unafraid way of addressing secularity, humanism, and the burdens and, uh, and, and, and torments that religion was imposing on the world. And 2007 isn't that long ago, and yet we have to remember that's the year the iPhone came out. It's right. the year Twitter came out. You know, this is a, a lot has changed since then. And, and it's fascinating to hear and watch you, you four talking about the world and wondering whether this has been made irrelevant by the, the rise of social media and the rise of all the things that have risen since then. But actually, one finds that, um, as I think I say in the introduction, that the talking about religion and the dangers of accepting religion or being bound by religion or allowing religious doctrine to inform policy and, uh, and, and to be sort of unquestioned in, 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 the, in government and in the world, that the, the dangers of that are as apparent now as they were then, and they actually leach out outside and things become a subset of religion in a way that are just as important. The, the same kind of heresies and blasphemies uh, no longer pertaining to God and Jesus and Allah, but uh, obtaining to gender politics and to all kinds of other issues now. Mm. And we're still in the same position of, of thinking, gosh, there, there, is, there, is still, there, there are still inquisitions, there are still utter defaces, you know, that, that there, you see people falling, tumbling, disgraced because they've said something heretical, yeah. foolish. And, and it's actually greater now than it was in 2007 when the, the power of religion was still strong then and the church, in particular the Roman church, and, but also evangelical Christianity in this country, the United States, where we're speaking, was, was on the rise, the Tea Party and all those things were beginning mm. to happen. But it's, yeah, I wouldn't count religion out just no, yet. I think, I mean, the, we, we see the pendulum keep swinging, but yeah, you're, you're, you're right to see the parallel with this new orthodoxy of political yeah. correctness, which was, you know, was, has always been a term and a concept, at least in, for the last few oh, decades. But yeah. this is really a front on which Hitch is so dearly missed. I mean, it's, it's, I've, I've, on more than a hundred occasions, I'm sure I have thought, Man, wouldn't it be great for yeah. Hitch to respond to this so this, it's so <laughs> this horror that just appeared? I'll get to the free speech stuff. Actually, I just want to reference something that you wrote in your forward to the book, which caught my eye. Now that I've uh, spent some time in the mindfulness minds producing a meditation app, <laughs> uh, you wrote in your description of me. You described me as being quote proficient in forms of meditation that an Englishman of my cast finds incomprehensible and deeply embarrassing. I can't even say the word mindfulness without blushing. Uh, so that, so, so and it's so true. And now, of course, I'm in the terrible problem, Sam, that I'm hearing your voice and your voice because I have subscribed. You kindly uh, showed me how to subscribe to yeah. your, your your waking up course of right. meditation and mindfulness, and I've subscribed to it and I've been obediently following through. And your voice now has has a very special place in my head because it's that irritating voice which you're fully aware of <laughs> you flag this that just as one's mind is beginning to spin off into a nothingness or whatever it is that as one concentrates on one's breathing and obeys the instructions you're giving there's a nice silence and in there's an inhalation and an exhalation and then damn it your voice comes in again and plucks one up right. uh, and and as you're aware it can be it's something one's got to get used to because my instinct is simply to fall asleep mm. <laughs> the moment you start I start concentrating on my breathing. I'm falling asleep, and and I know meditation and sleep aren't the same thing. No, no, both are good, but they're they're distinct. <laughs> yes, they yes. Are indeed. Yeah. But I no, I'm very fascinated by this, and fascinated by your role in this because 
Yes, I am embarrassed by words like mindfulness because I'm not quite sure what they mean, and that's an embarrassment. It gives me an awkwardness. Is perhaps a hmm. uh, kind of uh, similar word, uh, um, syn not quite synonymous, but close to it. But it's I even came so across wellfulness the other day, uh -huh. maybe oh, I, I, a great I, deal. I haven't heard that one. No, that <laughs> that embarrasses even me. Yeah. And one used to use the word to be mindful, to be aware, and so you know, awareness is, as we know, is a Anglo-Saxon ver version of conscious. So we're talking about right. consciousness, awareness, uh, heightened consciousness. I've always, I remember having a big row with John Cleese once about that. He nearly stalked out of a restaurant because I, I genuinely said to him, I don't understand how you can have levels of consciousness. What, what are they? What is a higher level of consciousness? Does it mean I'm seeing the red as redder or hearing the music more keenly or understanding a situation more accurately with greater acuity? How, what are these levels? And I'm a very, very empirical person, and I, I love to see how things are true. And, and with mindfulness, and let me just be a, a devil's advocate with sure, you. I'm, I'm it, not going to attack you. I, no, no. I really, I've got great Please. value already out of your course, and I'm finding it fascinating. But I think we, we all know that brain training games have been found to have zero applicability as far as actually improving the brain is concerned. They might make you slightly better at the game you're training at. So, yeah. for example, yeah. whether it's a crossword or it's a memory game or something, you're better at the, the crossword and better at the memory game. There may be some slight advantage in delaying forms of dementia by playing these games, which again, I mean, that makes rational sense, but there may be empirical evidence, epidemiological evidence that that works. But I am puzzled to think that you make claims for, for meditation, for example, that have, that it has cognitive effects. And I, I, I you know, I did a, I went documentary series going around America. I remember when we were in Iowa, I went to this town in Iowa, which is owned by um, transcendental meditation people. Right. They have a university there. And I went to interview them and they covered me in electrodes mm -hmm. and uh, tried to baffle me with science about alpha and you would say theta, we'd say yeah. theta in English, but you know, waves. And I'm, I'm aware of this, that you can be in a position of such concentration and relaxation at the same time that you can probably think off the top of your head a thousand uses for a paperclip, which are creative and amusing, which someone who's trying too hard wouldn't be able to. It's, it's a bit like the, the, the salmon, um, if a live salmon is, is, what an idea is and what, what a thought is. And, and if you try and clutch it, it's because it's alive and it's wet, it slips mm -hmm. out of your grasp. But if you hold it just right, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what I know some of the claims of meditation are that, that they allow this simultaneous relaxation and concentration. And, and I think that's, that's it's good. And I like the idea of it. I've always been propelled by, as I say, by greed and by ambition and by all the sort of darker sides of kind of lust and awkwardness and embarrassment, as I've said, that, that drive one to a fascination with things. And mm. the very torment and difficulty of a human mind and its need for things and its greed for things has been for me what energizes and what makes me who I am. And I see. I've always had this terrible fear of almost anything, whether it's a pharmaceutical or psychoanalytical, psychotherapeutic, or, or to do with meditation, has seen it as a kind of zombifying, a kind of mm. taking the edge 
off my mind. I want my anger. The seven deadly sins to me are, are the seven deadly propellants that, right. or the, the fuel that, 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 that get me forward in life. And I know that's nonsensical. And I know that- No, you... no, it's not nonsensical at all. There's truth to, to many mm. of those claims. I think, let's, let's take the first piece. So yeah, the research on the benefits of training, even mm. forget about just mental training, this is even true of physical training, suggests that you get better at what you train very specifically. And, and in many cases, there's much less of a transfer effect than you'd expect. And this, again, this can be true even of you know, physical training in a gym. It's like yeah. you, you get stronger in precisely the ways in which you exercise. And people who you know, could be just hulking with muscle and look like you know, fantastically strong you know, athletes, if you put them in a paradigm that has to be working the same muscle groups, but it's not the way they train, Yes. They're not nearly as impressive as they Hence, are. Cross training you know, and, and exactly that's what that's why people yeah. mix it up, you know, endlessly yeah. to be be very well rounded athletes. And the same is true of the mind. So as you say, if you if you train, if you do these brain training games that work, you know, some aspect of working memory, say, well, you get better at that particular task, but you're not. It doesn't transfer into the rest of your intellectual life, and or at least there's no evidence that I'm aware of that it does at this point. And we should also just acknowledge that meditation can mean many different things. There are different yeah. types of meditation, and so people can be training different things under that guise. But with mindfulness, what you're training is the very thing you want more of, arguably, once you understand how it, how it yeah. can function in the, the economy of your emotional and yes. cognitive life, which is you're becoming more aware of the dynamics of your own mental suffering. Just the way in which being captured by thought moment to moment is leaving you hostage to whatever the contents of those thoughts are. And once you learn you know, there's some modicum of mindfulness, you're, you actually see there's, just a, there's a choice between being lost in thought, and by lost I mean thinking without even being dimly aware for those moments or minutes or hours that you're thinking. It's very much like being asleep and dreaming, right? Yeah. You're, just, you're, just, you're just ruled by your thoughts. And then you're just laid bare to whatever emotional and behavioral implications are there. So you're, you know, you're angry, you're sad, you're saying the life deranging and relationship deranging things you say as an angry or sad person to your spouse or whoever. And mindfulness simply gives you the ability to, if nothing else, choose how long you want to be angry or sad for, really. Because yes. like you can just punctuate that wheel works of reactivity and pause if only for a few moments and, and those pauses can be enormously beneficial now to your point about i guess classically negative emotions being a source of creativity and energy i think that's true for many of us some of the time i th but i think it's easy to either just in a delusory way, make a virtue of necessity there. I mean, the, those yeah. of us who are ruled by negative emotion are finding some silver lining to them, right. whereas mostly they're just a source of suffering that would be great to get rid of. I mean, if you could put on one hat, which would allow you to feel the optimum motivational component of one, positive emotions that you're not tending to feel, and two, you could titrate your negative emotions just to like their creative mm. optimum, but then not suffer whenever you didn't feel like suffering, right? If there's some yeah. happy balance there, you might understand that very few of us find it just by accident. Because like, if you can't be mindful, 
if you can't notice the next thought arise and capture your conscious yes. life for moments or minutes or hours, you are simply living out the consequences of your past conditioning and your, mm. you know, you're just who you were yesterday. You're like, there's no, there is actually no choice to make. Whereas if you train this particular skill, again, the awareness of the process and an ability to step back can give you another degree of freedom. And if, if it is just, listen, this is, it's good to be angry for the next 10 minutes because <laughs> yeah. that's how I'm going to write this scene. Well, then, then use it that way. Yeah. Yes, and I wouldn't want to overstate the values of, uh, of, of what we tend to call negative emotions like anger and fear and so on. I suppose, I, I remember once I was filming years ago and uh, the, Maggie Smith, the wonderful Maggie Smith was in it and we were in a sort of typical English country house and there were fields around it. And she looked and in that very Maggie Smith way, she looked at these cows. She said, don't they ever get bored? And it was a sort of funny remark, but I also thought that's a very obvious, profound remark. Children must think that. There's a cow in a field. And if we project ourselves into that cow for just a minute, we are absolutely, absolutely distraught with boredom. We, the idea that all we have to do is haul these calories into our interior, mm -hmm. cropping grass, never stopping, always standing up, occasionally looking around, bits of rain fall on you, and then you wander around, and you, know, have a, you break wind, and then you drop a cow pat and then you move on and that's your day there's no books there's no television there's no conversation there's no imagining there's haven't they though achieved the absolute height of mindfulness they have they they're concentrating purely on being a cow they're achieving their cowness a hundred percent of the time what mm. it is when you're a human is that we are constantly feeling we're falling short of what we should be that a man's reach should exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for? Hmm. Browning rather wonderfully put it. Yeah. We're constantly, there's something else up on the hill. It's both mad, and we know it's mad, because whenever we get to the top of the hill, we want another hill to climb to. And, and, and you know, Alexander wept when he saw there were no more, no more kingdoms to conquer, whatever yeah. the phrase is. Yeah. But at least I'm not a cow, you know? And yet we I think look... Didn't Caesar also weep when he contemplated how much Alexander had conquered? Yes, exactly. Oh, there's always going to be envy as well. But... You know, and at their best, you look at an animal. I always think of the Amazonian tree frog I once encountered, and its face was just, it's like, like the face of someone you fell in love with when you just briefly gl glanced them getting onto an underground train and never saw them again for the rest of your life, but you always know they were the one, you know. And this tree frog was standing, you know, with an arm on one branch and an arm on another, legs open, with an enormous grin on its face. And I remember thinking, you know, you don't, as a tree frog, you never... Wake up in the morning thinking, was I a good tree frog yesterday? And I felt, oh, I, was a, I let myself down. I let my family down. Oh, I'm going to have to apologize to someone tomorrow morning. We can be pretty sure they don't think that. They, what they are is 100% of the time fully realized as a tree frog. They fully achieve their destiny. And we don't. We never do. And if I met someone who had, I would just think they were just like some joke, you know, smiling Buddhist who always just gave me the truth in reverse all the time, you know, ah, you must not sit down on the sofa. You must let the sofa stand up on you. I'm, off. I'm not interested. <laughs> Go away. Don't talk nonsense. And you know that we actually annoyed by placidity by the cow in the field. It, when mm. we meet it amongst humans, we think, come on, where's the juice, the bite, the vinegar, the fun, the snap. And again, I am 
definitely being de devil's advocate here, I'm, I'm not saying that I ge genuinely, I genuinely don't disparage these ideas of mindfulness, and I'm fully aware that unhappiness and its wider forms, as we all know the epidemiology on suicide and self-harm that is sweeping our culture, is huge. Although, again, there's a lot of misreading of those data. You know, WHO will tell you that there is no higher instance of depression in uh, the so-called developed world than there is in the undeveloped world. That actually is pretty even. Uh, we, Interesting. We, I feel like that's been we've been propagandized with another message recently. Exactly that, that we we must be guilty, and because we live in an emotionally constipated, difficult, bad, awful culture that needs released into a nice, sweet world of friendliness and you know, yeah. and empathy. And I I agree with that. But then I see empathy as coming from exactly things like embarrassment. Embarrassment are a result of empathy. You, you're embarrassed for other people when you see them making a, a mistake. Because embarrassment, is, there's one's own shame, pudeur, whatever word you want to use, that one can feel about one's naked state, mm. one's desires, all the things that we're ashamed of in, inside, the, you know, the, the primal genesis, you know, you were naked, we were naked and we were ashamed, we say to God, you know. But there's the, the real embarrassment is the embarrassment you feel for other people when you, I think. It's a form of real empathy to, to, to feel awkward about others. That's why I can't watch any reality TV. I'm just yeah, mortifying, yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> I cannot bear seeing people put in that position, even if they're happy or, or clearly believe they are and think they've triumphed. I just want, I, I weep. For, yeah. It's, a, it's strange. I can't I have, explain. I have it. a problem watching ice skating. Oh. The failures in ice skating I find more painful than anywhere in athletics because the mismatch between what was gracefully being accomplished a moment before and what happens when they splatter all over the ice. Yes, that's that uh, It's just ghastly. I, I, yeah, that's it. But that, it is. So, do you know Paul Bloom's work on empathy? I've heard of it, but I don't know it. Yeah, I know it's, yeah maybe we'll touch that in a second because mm. it's, it's fascinating. To come back to your point about the cows, the mindful cows, no one who studies mindfulness or, or who gets deep into the practice thinks that that mere placidity, like, yeah. I mean, and certainly not bovine placidity, <laughs> is an exemplar of the practice. And this is actually a misunderstanding that you can persist for a long time while one's practicing. It's not really passive. I mean, there's something very active mm. about mindfulness because you are keenly aware of the actual character of your experience in a way that you're tending not to be in every other moment. I mean, the moment where you're consumed by thought, where your reach is exceeding your grasp, mm. tends to be a moment where you are actually not, your attention is, is bound up by thought and reactivity and prejudice, you know, and in ways where you're not actually cognitively and emotionally available in all kinds of other ways that you could recognize the, va the value of and the rewarding nature of if you could inhabit that band of consciousness long enough. So I mean, just like socially, like when you are in, in the mode of your ambition in relationship to other people, there are all kinds of experiences you're not having with other people that if you could have them, you'd, you might recognize they're actually preferable, right? So like yes. if you're, when you're ambitious, when there are many things you desire, you walk into a room with a bunch of other people and they're beginning to function like props in your world where I mean, you either have to get around them, you have to use them, they all have kind of mm. instrumental value. If somebody is incredibly wealthy, that may be relevant to you. If you're a 
you know, a fundraiser or you have something, if, if that, if that completes part of the puzzle of your own ambition, you know, you begin yeah. to see people at, in ways which are, again, instrumentalizing of them. And it, it makes you unavailable to actually connect in ways that you would otherwise connect if mm. your attention were free of, well, of your own desire. Look, can I do a bit, a bit simpler in a way? Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about body mind or body brain, and obviously that's a whole thorny issue about brain and mind, but let's just say for the moment they're roughly the same thing. Yeah, sure. If, I, if someone's been to the gym, if someone has body fullness, if someone runs and goes to the gym and is brilliantly trained and very fit, I can see it straight away. Yeah. And, and what's more, I can go upstairs with them, next to them, and I'm puffing at the top of the stairs and they aren't. There's so many obvious signs of their superiority and of the achievement that their training has given them. It's just apparent. Yeah. Now, can you say to me that we can have a random test in which I meet 20 people and I will be able to see straight away which 10 of them have had mindfulness training and which 10 haven't? If they're just a random bunch of people, is there some equivalent to that? My God, look at what they can lift. Look how fast they can go up the stairs without getting out of breath. Look at what they, their balance. Look at the physical achievement they've made through all this training. Can I yeah. see that? Well, in the extreme, or is one only comparing it with oneself? Well, the comparison to oneself, provided one does enough training, that can be, in the end, all the comparison and that's one all needs. That I mean, that, yes, that can of course, be I see that. But I just wondered, yeah. just purely yeah. as, a, as, a, as a... I would argue it's a false standard. I mean, the truth is, in the extreme case, yes, it, it can become apparent. You can meet extraordinary examples of stability in this kind of practice or, or related practices like loving-kindness practice, where you meet yeah. someone who's just trained up this one style of relating to other people where they're just they've been meditating for years on wishing others you know strangers anyone anyone you know all conscious beings like a, actually a, a Greek, to be free of demonism a kind, yeah a kind of just giving yeah. out of so there's just yeah there's just yeah. A, a kind of a surplus of good intention that you can you yeah. can f you feel and that's from something that's not innate in their characteristic but that they have trained themselves to yeah to, to yeah. yeah and you can train you know you can train it yourself i mean there obviously there are pharmacological examples of the, these kinds of changes. Like mm. People who take MDMA know what it's like for the span of eight hours to feel... Have you ever, have you ever done any psychedelics? Yes, and, and you've only once had to take LSD for it to right. be with you for the rest of your life to the effect that it can have on one's... You know, all those Huxley um, right. <laughs> kind of things about the doors of perception are lamentably well, true. One well, does let's, let's one's talk stuff. about that for a second. So, so, yeah. the, so you've taken... You, when did you take LSD? Not for, I mean, decades ago, but oh. I remember almost... The entire, it was like over a weekend with some friends, and it was an extremely profound and remarkable experience. And it, Was it extremely positive, or was it mixed positive It was positive, positive one negative. tiny moment when I was alone at one point where I got terribly, terribly afraid and had a right. recursive image in my head that wouldn't go away, and which was beginning to frighten me, and I was tumbling down it, but I was brought out of that. But that was an important part of it. And, and I remember all the, you know, there's, I'm never quite sure the difference between them, but uh, quiddity and hexity. <laughs> The thisness and thatness of, of things. And you know, one would look at one's fingernail and see the fingernailness of a fingernail and, the, and, and how extraordinarily fingernaily it was. And, and, mm. it, it, and, and I felt as doing it that I would never lose that, that I would be able to, 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 to bring back this way of looking at things so that I could see the grain and the, the absolute whatness of them. And, and that, that was a very valuable an extraordinary experience mm. and and it chimed with everything i'd read and then continued to read from people like but like huxley and and i guess to, 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 to some extent all right so so let me ask you so so Leary. imagine the the 
the most normative component of that experience or the place in that experience where if you could maintain that mm. state of consciousness, you would say, okay, well, that's obviously more fulfilling, more drenched in clarity or meaning mm. than the experiences I'm tending to have, say. Two things to notice about that. One is that there's not necessarily anything someone could have noticed about you from the outside that would have advertised that state of consciousness, especially well. No. Right. So you would have just been sitting on a couch they staring at your fingernail. Wow, slightly it's too much. More, <laughs> more than I usually exactly right. ever would. Wow, yes. this man likes his fingernails. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of wowing. <laughs> but no, you're right. Yeah. There's no 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 other other difference other than this absolute openness to, to the yeah. experience, especially of the senses. I mean, every one of them. So the the, the coldness and the wetness of water in the mouth and uh, as well as this, you know, sight of flowers and all the cliches, you know, which reminded me of my I think we can all remember times, if we're lucky at least, uh, in adolescence in particular, where we are become convinced, convinced in a quite solipsistic way that only we really see how beautiful a dawn is or, or an animal or a flower or the nature or love and that, that, that we are particularly privileged to have this access to the staggering beauty of everything. And, and it, it overwhelms us and, and it's, a, it's a very teenage thing. And as a teenager, I didn't want to lose it. I was aware uh, it, it, it's a different sort of consciousness, a more intellectual consciousness or one that had done a lot of reading, precocious kind of consciousness. I was aware that this would pass, that this was a phase. Right. I, I had read enough autobiographies and uh, spiritual yeah. autobiographies of, of writers and you wouldn't be a teenager to know that, yeah. that this would leave me. And I felt savagely that I never wanted it to. And of course, I always believed that art, art and music in particular, were, were pathways to, 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 to retaining that. Mm. So, you know, if I listen to a Schubert sonata or something, I'm, it's an instant access straight away to, to these profound feelings and revelations, this terrific sense of the beauty and the, the, the majesty and the glory, as well as the, the, the fear of uh, uh, the power of the way things are at, the, at an atomic level or at a great sort of huge natural level. It's, you, you, you'll know it. Anybody listening yeah. will know that. Yeah. We don't talk about it much because it's embarrassing, uh, slightly, because it's yeah. Yeah. More, effusive. More, and, more, uh, more for Englishmen, I think. Yeah, it yeah. probably yeah. is, yes. Yeah. Which is why I, I suppose they become poets. It's why Keats is so Keats and Shakespeare is so Shakespeare, because, because they have to find a way, <laughs> because they're not allowed to talk like that in the pub. <laughs> so, yeah, not to give a false impression here, the, so the, what I'm saying about LSD it's mm. not that the experiences one tends to have on LSD are exactly like the, no. what, what the goal is of, of kind of sustained mindfulness, but there's a, f a few lessons to draw there. One is that no matter how glorious that experience has yeah. been for for many of us who have taken those drugs, there's not necessarily an outward sign. There's no physical aura right. that says, yeah. "Ah, I see yeah. you have taken that." Yeah, and it, I mean, you no. can you know yeah. you know those of us who have related to people in those states recognize that if you interact with them long enough, you begin to see that mm. like more or less vivid signs of the, that their state of mind is transformed. But it can be very subtle. And depending on your how your attention is bound up and how you view other people, you may not notice anything out of the ordinary at all. But also the other point is that there's nothing that your brain is doing on LSD or any other drug that your brain in principle isn't capable of doing without those drugs. Because I mean, if you just look at yes. the, the pharmacology of any drug, all a drug does is mimic the behavior of existing neurotransmitters or 
cause those neurotransmitters mm. to be in the synapse longer or, or, or less long. There are not many levers in the brain for a drug to pull, and they're all part of the brain. So I, you can be fairly confident that whatever experience anyone has had on any drug, there's somebody somewhere who's had a very similar experience without any drug, right? Yes. Just, just whether oh, they, absolutely. Based and on neurological injury. William, or, William you know, Blake, which is why you know, poets and mystics like that were so appealing to the first generation to discover drugs like LSD, yeah. things, you know, to the Timothy Learys and the Huxleys and so on, was because they thought this people have been there before. They have pulled back this membrane or they've, they've entered this tunnel and they've seen things that this drug is allowing me to do it now. They've done it through their own their own insight or their own uh, ability to let go and whatever it might yeah. be, or, or indeed their own discipline, their own craft. I mean, if, if, if I, to, to me, well, I remember when I first write, read the four words of Whitman as a teenager, which I couldn't understand as words, but which hit me like a lightning bolt. I sing the body electric. Mm -hmm. It's a famous line. Yeah. It's a cliche almost. Yeah. But... To, to that's, me, that's that did everything. Of many that it, acid trips, yes. But it, anything that an acid trip could do, but also a mindfulness experience or a, a, a meditation period, is I, I would stare at those words and my mind would go through, why do they have this effect on me? What is it meaning? Who am I connecting with? Who else feels like this? Who was this man? And by penetrating poetry or art or music, I'm getting all the benefits of mindfulness, but they're not solipsistic or egotistical because they involve learning about this other person who's given it to me. Who was this Schubert? Who was this Wagner? Who was this? Oh, it doesn't matter who, who, who Jimi Hendrix or Duke Ellington. It doesn't matter who, who, what sort of art it is, but you know, that you're actually learning, you're getting cultural, social history, racial history, European history, uh, all kinds of uh, incredible histories, as well as technique and craft of prosody and poetic writing and music and chord shifting and, and how do all these things m make me feel so extraordinary? And it, 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 it's, it's a full-on investigation rather yeah. than sitting cross-legged yeah. looking at my omphalos right. and, uh, and wondering about myself. Because I've always felt this powerful counterintuitive or thing that the, the the less one inspects oneself the more rewarding it is to oneself and right. that's one yeah. of my fears if yeah. you like or embarrassments about meditation is that it's a bit it's a bit egotistical it's a bit vain and therefore not helpful right. not that there's anything wrong with being vain and egotistical except well no there usually well, there is a lot yeah, wrong yeah, with yeah, it yeah, there is no <laughs> yeah. no i would well so again i think that's a, a misapprehension of the project First, I would say is that mindfulness is definitely not a surrogate for all of the other things you just mentioned. No, I mean, and it's, you, it's not you the do same. mention that in your in your films and uh, you know in your t talks and uh, right. and so I mean, on. So it is just not. It's yeah. not a replacement for being artistically creative or appreciating the creativity of others. I mean, those yeah. are just separate yeah. things to do. Now, it's not incompatible with those things. You can be mindful. And do all of those things, uh, you know, while being mindful. That's that's also true. You can, and I would argue that you'd be more appreciative of many of the products of your own creativity or others because you can actually pay attention because you're just not as distractible, mm. right? So it's, it is, yes, you know, the distraction is the enemy of everything we want to pay attention to, whether it's our own creativity, a movie we're trying to watch, 
a yes. telephone call that we're, tra- we're, we're, you know, we're on the phone with our mothers or whatever, and we're losing the train of her thought because yeah. what we're multitasking. Certainly you and I, and I bet most people listening would agree that if we could bottle concentration, if we, if we could yeah. learn how to just instantly zoom in and focus on the job that has to be done without having to look out of the window for half an hour first or traipse around the room or go off to drive and pick up some eggs and milk and come back again and then face the right. dreaded blinking screen or whatever it is, the, the job, then yes, the distraction. And, and that actually is one of the primary mm. skills that is transferable from meditation because meditation is the ability to pay close attention to any arbitrary object. Right? Yes. So if you say, stare at that water bottle for five minutes, somebody who really knows how to meditate, who has trained it as a skill, can stare at it and be one-pointed enough such that not much else is happening, right? So if the goal is to just keep eyes on the water bottle and, and, and attention on the, you know, inwardly on the water bottle, that is an impossible task for most people. It becomes increasingly possible the more you learn to meditate. So then swap out that water bottle for anything else, you know, the, 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 the laughing face of your child, right? When you have your smartphone competing for your attention, but your child is there and you've got this one opportunity to, to pay attention. We're constantly faced with this, this If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.